Hi, welcome to our latest edition of Reading Together as we continue to read through Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. We are on chapter eight today. This is where Willard goes into some of the history of spiritual disciplines and asceticism. So there's going to be looking at the history of asceticism in the broader Christian, Jewish, religious traditions, and also looking at it in terms of what's going on in our culture. That shapes how we might receive it, how we might understand it. Let me throw up our text here. If you haven't joined us before, the pattern I follow is most of the time I look at quotes from Willard in the chapter, and then we talk about it. There's going to be a few places today where we look at what scripture has to say, a few places where I just sort of summarize what Willard has to say, and a few places I even argue with him. Uh, let's start off with this. Uh, Willard says, contemporary Westerners, now that's us, people who live in America, uh, Western Europe, modern people. Contemporary Westerners are nurtured on the faith that everyone has a right to do what they want when they want to pursue happiness in all ways possible, to feel good, and to lead a productive and successful life, understood largely in terms of self-contentment and material well-being. Now, you notice he uses the word faith there. We're nurtured on the faith that everyone has a right to do this. Now, by faith here, he's not talking about the Christian faith or any other thing that we put in the category religion. This is a worldview, a way of thinking, what we take to be the nature of reality. Nature of reality is that we assume that everybody has the right to do this. Uh, we have the right to pursue happiness as we define it. There's nobody that can tell me what counts as happiness for me. And what counts as happiness is always defined with reference to the individual. This right to feel good to lead a productive and successful life, whatever that means, usually in terms of advancing my own agenda, whatever that might be. Uh, the title I give this is Western Nihilism. Uh, nihilism is, uh, on my understanding, the idea that there is no higher evaluative framework than what I want. The I want is the controlling uh, factor in all decisions. If I want it, it's good. If I don't want it, well, it doesn't matter. But there is no good, no true, no beautiful, no right apart from my will. Well, that's for me. For you, it's your will. For anybody else, it's their will. It's highly individualistic. Uh, it's highly relativistic, highly subjectivistic. You've probably seen it out there before. Uh, this is the kind of world in which spiritual disciplines, if they exist, are purely chosen so I can get what I want out of them. I am the center. Uh, Willard continues, if for any reason we are not fully exercising and enjoying the right to freedom and happiness as popularly conceived, then we automatically assume that something is somewhere wrong. Now, if we paid attention to what uh, has happened throughout history, how most people have lived in most places at most times, then we'd have to assume, well, wrong is more often the case than right. Because most of the time, people haven't had any access to what we would today call freedom, which is being able to do whatever we want to do with nobody telling us no, and happiness, where we get to do, again, whatever we want. 
to make ourselves happy. And this, this is the way that's commonly thought out there. And now Willard here is talking about the world, the culture at large. But I see this um, among a lot of Christians. I see this in the church a lot of times. Sometimes we dress it up in terms of what we call spirituality. Sometimes we can even find a Bible verses, usually not the Bible taken in context, the Bible verses that'll support us. Uh, sometimes we can put Jeremiah 29, 11 that way. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a future. A really nice promise. And we think, oh yeah, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be prosperous. I'm going to have freedom. But we ignore the context there where Jeremiah is writing to the exiles, the people of Judah who have been carried off into captivity. The context is they're, they're in a pretty bad state. They're not at home anymore. They're living in a foreign country. They are subject to the rulers of Babylon. And Jeremiah is saying, okay, guys, you're going to be here for a while, for 70 years. So make yourself comfortable. Seek a life that that will bless the people of Babylon. I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to take care of you. might not be comfortable all the time, but I'm going to give you a future and a hope because I'm watching out for you, even in the midst of years, decades of hardship. Uh, Willard then looks at some of the prejudices against spiritual disciplines. He mentions David Hume. Uh, David Hume was a Scottish philosopher of the Enlightenment, died 1776. He looked at people who practiced spiritual disciplines as leading miserable lives. Uh, ooh, look at those people fasting. They're, they're just not looking very healthy. And there's other people, they're just a bunch of fanatics. So Hume himself was uh, well, accused of atheism, uh, at least a deist, at least non-religious. Uh, did not count himself a Christian in any way. Uh, so he looks at Christians who are serious about their faith, serious about spiritual disciplines, yeah, miserable lives. Now, Willard's response to that is that the failures Hume points at are real failures. But those failures are due to people not practicing spiritual disciplines or not doing them the right way. Willard also mentions Protestant critiques of spiritual disciplines. Now, I'm a Protestant, so I've heard some of these in my own tradition, although in the Methodist tradition, uh, we tend to more often, well, we'll get to the Methodists in just a minute. The Protestants, that's traditions that stem out of Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, uh, John Knox out of Scotland and the Presbyterians, uh, Baptists. The, the, the critique here is that spiritual, spiritual disciplines are Catholic things to do. Uh, Catholics do these to earn their salvation by doing all these things, by fasting, by doing all these praying by going through all these rituals and practices, they are earning favor with God. Now, on the one hand, uh, if you ask many Catholic practitioners of the disciplines today, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that they're trying to earn favor with God. Now, from the Protestant perspective, at least 500 years ago, that's what they thought. Willard's response to this way of thinking is that effort and earning are not the same thing. Willard's convinced that effort is involved in the spiritual life. Doing something is necessary in the spiritual life if we're going to live a life like Jesus. But that's not the same as earning. We can never earn an in with God. We can never earn eternal life. We can never earn salvation. We can never earn life in Christ. 
Effort, yes. Earning, no. He goes on to talk about some of the biblical critics. Fasting and the rituals of worship are among the practices most commonly attacked by the Hebrew prophets as useless or even harmful exercises in religion. We could look at Isaiah 58, Isaiah 59, Matthew 23, and in just a minute, next slide, we'll look at Amos chapter 5. When such practices were conducted, as they often were, as expressions of fear and hatred of the material world, or as attempts to manipulate or impress God. Hey, God, look how spiritual we are. Hey, God, we're having this meeting because we're so serious. And because we're having this meeting, because we're praying this way, we expect you to hop up and do what we need you to do. Come on, God. That's like buying God off. Um, those are abuses, Willard says. So instead of uh, aiding life in vital interaction with the kingdom of God, such activities became and still become. So it's not just ancient Israel. It's not just the Pharisees, not just medieval Catholicism. It's us today, even in Protestant churches. And they become exercises in human cleverness and superstition. We're trying to get an end with God. We're trying to manipulate God. We're trying to force God to do what we want. And uh, we're trying to treat it as magic. It doesn't work. Here's what we read in Amos 5, uh, starting in verse 21. Is God speaking through the prophet here? I hate... I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. I'm one of those people that, that has led some of these festivals and assemblies before. Uh, it's not only here where I am now, but in other places I've lived, I've gotten together with other pastors, other churches, and we've gotten solemn assemblies together. We've sought the Lord. We've fasted. We've prayed. We've called out to the Lord together. But Amos has a hard word for us. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Here in our churches, we talk about offering things to the Lord. We might offer our money, our things, our resources, our time, our talents, our skills. And yet that's not all God wants. And we, if we think that we're going to buy God off or earn favor with him, it's not going to work. Amos continues, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Seems to be something God's after here. It's not just religion. It's not just performance. But it's doing the right thing, treating people the right way. Uh, Willard then turns to look at Jesus, uh, a good thing for a Christian to do. Ask the question, is Jesus an ascetic? He says, John the Baptist's manner of life seems to have been ascetic in a manner more extreme and more recognizable as ascetic by the people of his time than was that of Jesus himself. I mean, you look at John the Baptist. Where, where is John? Is, is John living in houses, palaces? Well, no, John's out in the wilderness. How's he dressed? Well, camel hair. What's he eating? Sumptuous meals? Uh, locusts? Wild honey? Feeding off what he finds out in the wilderness. John the Baptist was an ascetic. He was putting it pretty hard on himself. What about Jesus? 
Wow, Jesus was very different. Jesus was still able to offend the Pharisees' legalistic sense of propriety, as Willard calls it. Uh, in the Bible, we read about them calling him a drunkard and a wine-bibber, because Jesus, unlike John the Baptist, was out among the people. Jesus was going to their parties. Jesus was going to their dinners. Jesus was fellowshipping with them. Jesus was feasting with them. So John the Baptist might look like an ascetic, fasting, praying, off by himself, solitary life. Whereas Jesus, Jesus is going after it. He's partying. He's out there with people, even with sinners, even with people that had no idea of how to pursue God's holiness. So John, John looks like an ascetic. Jesus, not so much. But we look at Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus was fasting. We look at Jesus' lifestyle, lifestyle of prayer. So Willard would be inclined to say, yeah, Jesus is an ascetic, but not an extreme ascetic. Willard goes on to say that, talk about the intrinsic value of what we think of as ascetic practices of the spiritual disciplines. He says, when we look closely and continually at Jesus, we do not lose sight of this one fundamental crucial point. The activities constituting the disciplines have no value in themselves. That's that intrinsic value. It's not that there's magic. It's not that there's uh, merit badges that we get from fasting a certain amount or being in scripture a certain amount or praying so many hours. It says the aim and substance of a spiritual life is not fasting, prayer, hymn singing, frugal living, and so forth. Rather, it is the effective and full enjoyment of active love of God and humankind in all the daily rounds of normal existence where we are placed. So fasting, hymn singing, prayer, frugal living, we think of those as things that we might do in our closet all by ourselves, in church. Those are churchy things. But he's talking here about what we do instead in, in all the daily rounds of normal existence where we are placed. Uh, might be at work. Might be at school. Might be at the grocery store. Might be around City Hall. Might be just in our neighborhoods. Willard continues, the spiritually advanced person is not the one who engages in lots and lots of disciplines anymore then the good child is the one who receives lots and lots of instruction or punishment. It's not so much the inputs, it's the outputs, it's the effects. What, what effects are the disciplines having? The disciplines are a means. They're not ends in themselves. It's not the intrinsic value, it's the extrinsic value. It's what they do for us, how they transform us, how they give God space in our life. God, they give God room to work in us to transform us into the image of Jesus. It goes on, people who think that they are spiritually superior because they make a practice of a discipline, such as fasting or silence or frugality, are entirely missing the point. The need for extensive practice of a given discipline is an indication of our weakness, not our strength. We could even lay it down as a rule of thumb that if it is easy for us to engage in a certain discipline, we probably don't need to practice it. Now, I'm gonna question some of that, but the basic idea here is that these spiritual disciplines, again, are not of intrinsic value. We use them to strengthen us. 
We use them to give us power and ability in areas where we lack that power and ability. We fast so we can gain control over our flesh. We already have control over our flesh. Then we don't need to fast so much. Sometimes we think of fasting as a way to earn favor with God. Hey, God, I'm showing you that I'm really serious here. So if I fast for uh, a day, if I fast for a week, if I fast for 40 days, I'm showing you, God, that I'm really serious. So you have to listen to me. No, that's, that's not how the disciplines work. The disciplines work on opening up space in our life for God to transform us. If our flesh is out of control, if we're always giving in to our appetites, we need to fast. But there's more here. And this is where I, I differ with Willard a little bit. Uh, there's lots of ways to divide up the disciplines. And in a, a coming chapter, he's going to divide them up in, in one way. One way I'd like to suggest that we divide up the disciplines is formative disciplines, or there's a formative dimension of the disciplines. This is the di dimension whereby we become formed, we become transformed, we become changed. We build our spiritual muscles, our our human muscles, the muscles of our will, of our intellect, of our mind, of our perception, of our sociality, of our ability to relate to others and love others, our ability to serve others. The disciplines form us, shape us, strengthen us, give us abilities. But some of the disciplines are, at least in some ways, constitutive. They are part of what it means to live the Christian life. Prayer. Prayer, for example. Prayer is a transformative discipline. Uh, prayer forms us as disciples of Jesus. But prayer is also constitutive. Uh, as we pray, we are living out that Christian life. It's not, okay, yep, I've finished praying now. Now I'm going to something else. Uh, we might say here, keeping up the analogical forms of life, that practice is not the same thing as playing. Practicing a piano, yeah, if you're playing piano, you got to practice. You practice so you can play. But it's, it's in the context of our actions uh, that makes the difference. Sometimes what I do in practice may be exactly the same thing I do in performance. I practice the piece over and over and over again. But it's that piece that I'm going to play in my performance in front of others. The practicing, the same thing, is done so that I can then do it in public with others, for others. So it's the context that's determining whether it's, I'm engaging in the formative dimension of the discipline or the constitutive dimension of the discipline. It also suggests that disciplines are individual and communal. It's not just that I pray, it's that we pray. It's not just that I worship, it's that we worship. Not just that I serve, but we serve. It's not just that I fast, but we fast. These disciplines are not just things I do by myself or you do by yourself. They're things we do together which are constitutive. They make up our life in Christ together. Uh, Willard, as we see in this chapter, is not a fan of monasticism. Uh, and monasticism, especially the monasticism of the Desert Fathers, he sees uh, too much antibody and anti-world attitudes. Yeah, we're going to go far away from the world. We're going to go away from people. And there's some disdaining of the flesh, our physicality, our materiality. And he sees maybe a little too much Platonism there. Maybe some uh, Manichaeism, maybe some Gnosticism. He says that, uh, that extreme asceticism 
treats the disciplines as ends, not means. And he says the identification of the excesses with spiritual disciplines themselves cause the Protestants to go against the disciplines themselves. So sometimes the more we emphasize the disciplines, the more likely we are to get them wrong. Got to be careful. Now looking at some denominations, uh, Willard says in the Reformed Church's discipline became identified with something the church exerts over its members to keep them in line. Yeah, the job of the pastor, the job of the elders in a Reformed Church is to exercise discipline over the members. If they see the members sinning, they need to call them account uh, and call them to repent. So they don't repent, go two or three, as Jesus says, Matthew 18, that doesn't work, bring it before the whole church. If that doesn't work, well, start all over again. That's church discipline in the Reformed context. In the Methodist context is the one I know best. We have a book of discipline, put out a new book of discipline every four years after general conference. Uh, we, we use that word discipline, but it doesn't mean that so much anymore. Now it's mostly eh, more along the lines of a mid 20th century bureaucratic manual of how to structure the church and our life together. Uh, discipline in, in the original sense, the original Wesleyan sense was the means of grace, the, the tools that we engage in, the practices we engage in to give God space in our life. I think the original Wesley and Dallas Willard are pretty close together in the function of the disciplines. And the Methodists did them communally. They did it through the, uh, the societies and the bands and the class meetings. Willard looks at Baptists and Pentecostals. Uh, when he looks there, you know, remember, uh, if I haven't mentioned it yet, Dallas Willard is a Southern Baptist pastor. Well, philosophy professor, but he's also ordained in the Baptist church. Talks about Baptist and Pentecostal, says there's not much talk of disciplines. I think that's changed a lot in recent years. Uh, quite a bit through Dallas Willard's influence, some through Richard Foster's influence. The Baptists have recovered that and some of the Pentecostals with them. Uh, too much uh, in, in that tradition. I'd say too much in the Methodist tradition, in my experience, of uh, going to church. Yeah, let's just go to church and we're going to get it there. We're going to get all the teaching we need in Sunday school, maybe the sermon, and maybe a Bible study. We'll get the information, not the transformation. He goes on to talk about what asceticism is. We've been using that word, but what's it mean? He points out that it comes from the Greek verb askein, which can be translated as to practice, to exercise, to toil, work, or labor. It says the ascetic is one who enters the training appropriate for his or her development into an accomplished athlete. You know what an athlete is and the training they go through. An athlete of body, mind, or spirit. Uh, an ascetic under this general idea is, is somebody that's in training camp. Somebody that's going through a regimen to get themselves in shape. They're doing the workouts. That's what asceticism is. But sometimes we usually take it in a body-denying sense. It's not Willard. He continues, he says, the entire question of discipline, therefore, is how to apply the acts of the will at our disposal in such a way that the proper course of action, which cannot always be realized by direct and untrained effort, will nevertheless be carried out when needed. There are some things we can't do. There's some things we can't do yet. Uh, if 
you want to run a marathon? Oh yeah, a marathon, 26.2 miles. That sounds pretty cool. If I were to go out and try to run a marathon now, eh, I'd probably die. I'd certainly end up in the hospital or collapse along the side of the road somewhere. It takes training. I can't do that now. But if I submit myself to the disciplines necessary, I can get to the point where I can do that. It's the same way in our life with God. God calls us, God deploys us. Through the spiritual disciplines, we can become the kind of people who can obey God, who can join in his mission, who can live the life that we see in Jesus. It takes discipline, takes the asceticism to get there, the training. Uh, Willard continues in the same vein. He says, the spiritual life is a life of interaction with a personal God, not just a supreme being or a religious principle. And it is pure delusion to suppose that it can be carried on sloppily. It's not just something we do haphazardly. Oh, yeah, I'll go to church when it's convenient. Oh, oh yeah, I'll go to church if, if the people like me, if they don't say anything that offends me, if they don't sit in my pew, they don't make decisions I don't like, if they play songs I like, if they don't play songs I don't like, uh, if they don't do things in the sanctuary that I think are inappropriate, like have drinks, they, if they sing too loud, I won't be there. If they don't sing loud enough, I won't be there. If the preacher preaches too long, well, I'll skip out. If the preacher doesn't preach long enough, I'll skip out. That's uh, no, sloppy. Spiritual life is a life of interaction with a personal God, a God who's living, a God who calls us to interact with him. It's pure delusion to suppose that it can be carried on sloppily, without effort, without focus, without discipline. The will to do his will can only be carried into reality as we take measures, as we do things, as we think about things, as we work things through, to be ready and able to meet and draw upon him in our actions. Not just that I get myself ready to do it in my own power, but I get myself in a place where I'm ready, able, willing, and prepared to rely on God. Uh, finally, he talks about being able to do the spiritual life, do this life in Christ automatically, naturally. Now, by naturally, he doesn't mean cut off from the spirit, cut off from supernatural, as we call it. He's talking more here about what Jesus is talking about when he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Uh, it's more that we can do it unthinkingly. Uh, he says we shouldn't totally ignore conscious intent, but we cannot rely on it alone. Why? Until we have taken the steps to achieve such unconscious readiness, we cannot honestly intend to speak Japanese without engaging in the learning activities that prepare us to speak that language. Uh, I lived in Japan when I was a kid. I, I learned a little Japanese. All I really remember now is I can say hello, goodbye, please, thank you, uh, and I can count to 10. Pretty impressive, isn't it? No, not really. What would I do if I wanted to go to Japan now and be able to make my way around the country as a tourist? What would I just say, well, I'm American, we speak English, and they need to speak English there if they want us to come there. I could do that if I was arrogant, but I'd be more to my advantage to maybe learn some Japanese to prepare myself so I would be prepared and ready to be able to speak Japanese. If I, I can't just say, okay, I am tomorrow intending to speak Japanese can't do that. It takes time. I can't just intend it in the moment. So the idea here is that we get to the point 
where we're trained, where these things happen without conscious thought. Uh, if you drive a vehicle, say you drive a car, drive a truck, when you're first starting out, every single thing you do requires conscious intent. You have to pay attention. But after you've been driving for a while, sometimes you'll notice that you get from point A to point B and you weren't really thinking about anything. I mean, you get there safely, you, you, you're a good driver, but you don't have to put conscious intent on every single thing you do. You learn, you've learned to do it automatically. You've been trained. Uh, some of us can do that when we're cooking certain recipes. It's not that we have to have the recipe right there in front of us, uh, exactly minutely, meticulously following it. Sure, if it's something new, we'll do that. But if it's something we've cooked several times, we just do it automatically. Remember working at McDonald's. Uh, the funnest part of working at McDonald's was save the lunch rush when there'd be hundreds of people coming in at once. We just had to churn out the burgers. Uh, if we had to stop and think about what we were doing as we prepared those hundreds of burgers at once, we would have never gotten it done. But you just get into a flow and do it automatically. That's what he's talking about here. The spiritual disciplines are means toward the end of living life in Christ, to having that be the natural way we live, what comes out of us automatically. So that's this chapter on some of the history of the spiritual disciplines. You can see that the history sort of recedes into the background as we look to spiritual disciplines as means toward the end, toward the end of living life in Christ, toward being walking in the power of the Spirit, calling on God's resources, living the spiritual life, which is not a life that is pie in the sky by and by, or uh, life that is so heavenly minded, it's no earthly good, but a life that can be earthly good because it is heavenly minded and heavenly equipped. So that's where we are today. Thanks so much today for joining us for reading together as we've been reading through the Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. I will see you next time. Thank you.